Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Every week, we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And as you know, one of the things that we do quite often uh, here, try to do quite often, is a segment that I call Tell Me Where I'm Wrong, uh, in which I invite people who might disagree with me on some point to tell me where I'm wrong. This, This episode will be a little different. Because I'm normally, I have these strict ground rules uh, where I can't uh, argue uh, with the brand. I'm going to try not to, to argue. I, I am going to try to just ask questions for uh, information. But I think there are going to be a lot of points here where there will be some agreement, some disagreement, maybe some different perspectives. And I might uh, learn quite a bit because the guest is Bill McKibben who his writings uh, I, I read uh, all the time. And as I'll mention later on, even when I disagree, I'm always provoked to think. And his book, Enough, um, although he was, he was writing from the way to the left of me, uh, really, really was influential on how I saw some bioethical uh, questions. And I was really uh, amazed at how much at how much commonality there was between his more much more progressive uh, world and and those of us who are more socially conservative on some of these questions of what does it mean to be a human being and what does that have to do with religion. So there'll be there'll be a, I, I anticipate some points of agreement, points of disagreement, but a really uh, profitable uh, and idea-generating sort of a writer. But today, I mean, normally Bill McKibben writes about issues of um, environment, of climate, of, uh, as I mentioned, bioethics a time or two. Uh, But this book that we're going to be talking about today, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, is completely different because he's talking about suburbia. And uh, in it, what I want particularly to hear from him about is where I think he's going to disagree with something that's really important to me. And that's the question of cultural Christianity. He doesn't use that language in the book, but he talks about the sort of um, suburban mainline um, world that he grew up in uh, that he sees going away. Uh, due to secularization and some other uh, factors. And he sees this as loss in a lot of ways. He sees this as, as evidence of a loss of community, um, a, a heightening of individualism, that there was, 
there was something about that stable mainline Protestant Christian world that held communities together. Um, and of course, I, I believe that there are some bad things that happen with nominal cultural Christianity going away. Um, I, I think that there are people who in previous generations, they belonged to churches, they didn't uh, necessarily believe much, but they had the resources to maybe stay married when they were going through some trouble and uh, and and learning how to get along with one. I, I don't disagree that there are some social losses there, but my primary issue is, uh, of course, I believe that the, the issue is the gospel and whether or not there's actual new birth and union with Christ. So in that sense, I think that this, um, this loss of kumbaya, we'll talk about kumbaya in a minute, kumbaya sort of um, cultural Christianity is actually a good thing. And uh, it is actually a moment of opportunity for the genuine uh, gospel that is strange and a sign of contradiction to emerge. But we'll see. Uh, whether or not he agrees with me on that. Glad to have with us today Bill McKibben, who is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. He lives in Vermont. He's an environmental activist, and he has written many, many books. I, I read uh, everything that he writes and has for about I guess, 20 years, uh, because even when he might be taking a position that I don't hold, <laughs> he does so with imagination and with uh, a persuasive force. And it causes me to either rethink what I think or uh, to just think more deeply about why uh, I see things the way that I do. And I think that is a hallmark of a very good uh, writer and thinker. And so I'm really excited to have you on the program today. Bill, thanks for being with us. Well, a pleasure for me and very much back at you. You know, um, I've had the chance once or twice to write for Christianity Today over the years. And I used to write fairly regularly for the late lamented books and culture. Um, mm. And and so I get to read uh, much that's going on in your world and, and I'm grateful for, for the opportunity. Just as you say, even when I don't always agree, uh, it's good and powerful work. Well, thank you. Well, I I am really uh, I was really interested in your new book because it's uh, something that might be surprising uh, for for people who are accustomed to the sorts of things that you write about, which fairly wide range, but suburbia uh, at first uh, glance and and sort of uh, those kinds of cultural trends in America uh, is not what people think of first. But the more I thought about it, it made sense because I remember something that you wrote, I don't know how many years ago about the Brady Bunch <laughs> and about how that, that the view that Brady Bunch reruns had of this uh, suburban home where no work seemed to be done, even by the machines, everything just seemed to be, even Alice wasn't really doing that much. It just all appeared there. How that shaped and formed a part of uh, American life in the way that we view suburbia. And so I was, uh, first of all, this is exactly the sort of thing that he, uh, he should be writing about. And the book is called The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A graying America looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders, 
what the heck happened? And I'm, I'm just changing that a little bit for my Baptist sensibilities, but uh, the flag, the cross, and the station wagon. Uh, Bill, before we uh, get into a, a variety of issues in this book and, and beyond, one of the things that I'd like for you to give me your read on, for years and years and years, uh, one of the things that's sort of been central to my way of thinking is that American life is moving from, and in many places has moved from, a place where it's culturally necessary to be at least a nominal Christian. If you're not uh, a member of some church, even if you don't go to it, uh, at some points that would be akin to being a communist or, or, or something in American life. And so that meant that there was a kind of nominal cultural Christianity that is going away in most places, if not in every uh, place in North America right now. Um, and for me, I think that's a good thing. I, I think there are a lot of um, a lot of opportunities for authentic witness, similar to what Kierkegaard uh, was saying about Christendom uh, in uh, in his day. And so I'm wondering, as I'm reading your analysis of kind of what's changing in economic life, in religious life, in national life, uh, am I wrong about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the tradition I come out of is uh, the mainline Protestant tradition is, uh, you know, a couple of decades ahead of the evangelical tradition on this curve, <clears throat> but it's the same curve. In 1958, 52% of Americans belonged to one of the mainline denominations. They were Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, uh, Congregationalist. That number is now about 16%. And those of us who remain in that fold are, like me, old. <laughs> so, so uh, And now I think it's pretty clear that some of the same demographic trends have moved into evangelical churches as well. Um, for me, that's, I, I, as with you, I think that's, I mean, there's pluses and minuses, but the great plus is that a church that is the culture can't be the counterculture. Uh, that when, when, when everyone is uh, a Christian, then it doesn't mean much more than just baptizing whatever the status quo is. And, and so the question becomes what that countercultural life that that uh, the church uh, points us to looks like. And I think the most interesting question is going to be whether it points us towards greater uh, individualism. I think the kind of hyper-individualism that marks our culture now, or towards some kind of greater solidarity with each other. Um, back to the kind of project of the beloved community that Dr. King talked about um, in the 1960s. Well, I want to talk about individualism in just a minute, but before we do, why do you think this is happening? I mean, you talk about this uh, in the book, about this sense of, at one point you talked about uh, kumbaya, and I had not thought about the fact that kumbaya has just become sort of a cliche <laughs> that people give when they say we're not sitting around sing singing kumbaya. And what they mean is we're not just uh, together doing nothing. Uh, and, yeah. and you point about what what that actually, that sort of linguistic turn actually does represent something. In my church group, you know, when I was in high school youth group in church, we sang kumbaya a lot and we didn't sing it ironically. We sang mm. it 
quite seriously, and we loved the idea uh, behind it. Kumbaya translates to come together. Um, someone's crying, Lord, come together, come by here, come be with us. And, and uh, I, you know, I, it, it's easy to make fun of a lot of things about that world of my boyhood. Um, but there were things about it that were quite beautiful, too, uh, including that sense of solidarity, the sense that we were embarked on uh, uh, trying to build things together. Do, do you think, uh, you mentioned in the book at one point, um, the United Church of Christ and about the, the roots of Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, folks like that uh, into what is now congregationalism and, of course, uh, trying to imagine Jonathan Edwards at a United Church of Christ uh, <laughs> sort of gathering right now is really difficult to do. And for, for some of us in the evangelical world, um, what we have said for years is that there's a lack of theological identity uh, within uh, the main line in many ways to where it often became uh, more of a political uh, sort of self-identity than a theological identity, and that that's one of the reasons for the decline. The people, you know, you don't have to give up a you don't have to give up a Sunday morning if uh, what you're talking about is something you could talk about at a community gathering. But as you mentioned, um, evangelical uh, denominations, not all of them, I mean, non-denominational evangelicalism is is doing quite well, but many of the evangelical denominations are facing the same uh, sorts of decline just later. So where, why is, is that happening in your view? Is it, is it partly theological or is, that, is it just sociological? Well, let me say first that it may have been easier for me to sort of take those theological and historical threads uh, because I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, a town imbued with great history. I spent my high school summers giving tours of the battle green as uh, people streamed in to see the first battle of the American Revolution. And so the church that I went to, Hancock United Church of Christ, was the uh, direct descendant of those early colonial churches where, in fact, uh, the revolution <laughs> had in large measure been plotted. Uh, it was those Puritan clerics that the British referred to as the Black Regiment for their robes. Uh, mm. uh, that the, and the British were rightly scared of them because that's where people like Jonas Clark, who was the preacher in uh, uh, Lexington for 50 years and at whose house Paul, uh, John Hancock and Sam Adams were staying, when Paul Revere rode out to warn them that the British were coming. That's who. He, that's the parsonage that he was headed towards. So I actually, in, in my experience, the, the worlds of politics and theology have long had a lot to do with each other. Uh, and, 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 and I think that what happened, at least in part, has a lot to do with suburbia. People got rich fast. And that led to a kind of, to my mind, a kind of breakdown of the solidarity that had marked America as it came out of the Depression, as it fought through the Second World War, and then in the years afterwards as it began to kind of consolidate that prosperity. At a certain point, people became rich and highly individualized. Uh, by the end of the 1970s, you know, 1978, uh, we pass uh, Proposition 13 in California, the tax revolt that looked at in another way as a kind of, um, 
you know, canonization of a certain kind of selfishness. Uh, 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan's elected, and his uh, his his mantra is that uh, uh, each of us is the most important thing. It was his, you know, great friend Maggie Thatcher who said there is no such thing as a society; they're just individual men and women. And uh, so I think that that kind of thinking proved it probably pushes pushes puts a certain kind of poison into at least the religious tradition that that I came out of um, and and to some extent it can be more easily replaced by a more individualized relationship with God and a personal savior and so on but I think at a certain point that poison of a kind of hyper individualism just overwhelms um, um, I mean it's it's very hard <laughs> to uh, 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 hold those two things in one's head at one time. The idea that you're the most important thing in the world and the idea that you're supposed to be, uh, your life should be devoted to service of your neighbor, which is clearly what the gospel calls us to. Hmm. I, th- I think often about a church that I knew, Southern Baptist Church, uh, that had been thriving um, for, for many years. And someone there told me, that they don't have any um, deacons because the people who are qualified to be deacons are too old and uh, and because the people who might have grown up to lead in the church moved away and the ones who are there were were suffering with opioid addiction or uh, any number of uh, of ills that had come upon that community how much does mobility um, play into it? I mean, I think you, you referenced it there. Uh, there, there. There's a kind of evangelical consumerism that I think it's easy to denounce. And yet, uh, we, we, at least in my view, really don't want everyone in a parish structure where the, the church down the road, walkable from you is the only one you can go to, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it did. Uh, it did often lead to a uh, here's the way that we can appeal to you with these particular church programs and and kids programs and so forth. How? how I mean, we're not going to reverse mobility, um, I don't think. And so, how do we negotiate that then? No, but. Your point's a good one, and it goes back really to the one that C.S. Lewis was making in the screw tape letters, you know, that there's uh, many moments when it makes sense to stick with where you are and, and dig deeper. Um, um, I think that the, that the danger comes when people... There was a the set of one of the things that I write about in this book a lot, as you know, is sort of the questions around race. And one of the sad statistics for me was uh, 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 when pollsters talked to people in evangelical communities uh, about about what the responsibility was for the fact that we have enormous gaps in wealth in this country between the races and in evangelical communities. 65 or 70 percent were saying it's because, in essence, black people are lazy and not working hard enough and not because of the set of structural things that got in the way. It's when attitude, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's when attitudes get immobilized, um, when when we can't, when when religion isn't a force 
Christianity and when the gospel isn't a force that's making us reevaluate how we imagine the world, uh, and instead is just serving to sanctify our what we already thought. That's the immobility that, that always worries me. And you can find it in all uh, re religious expressions, including the churches I come from. Um, but that's the place, that's the thing that scares me when there's not a kind of dynamism that allows, that allows Christianity to play a role in helping uh, uh, lead, um, not just resist the, the world that we're mm -hmm. uh, coming into. You, you mention in the book a comparison between sort of the Christianity, the, the suburban sort of cultural Christianity in which um, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, could be on the cover of Time magazine, Paul Tillich uh, would be quoted in radio broadcasts often, um, to Howard Johnson's. And I, I think many of my <laughs> listeners probably don't even know what a Howard Johnson's is, but <laughs> but you can explain it. What's the comparison between that th those worlds? Well, just that uh, back in the day, uh, Howard Johnson's that was the first mass restaurant in the country, and before McDonald's, before everything else, it was where people. And the thing that was appealing about it to people as survey after survey showed, was that it was the same everywhere, that you knew what you were getting when you walked in the door, that there were no surprises. Now, you know, for some of us, that's not really the, I mean, if you're going to go out to eat, you might as well be surprised a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, one understands it. Well, that's what the church was, too, for a very long time, by necessity. I mean, if a church is, you know, if, if the church comprises almost everyone, then it's just going to be another extension of what normal is. And that's why it's a potentially dynamic and interesting moment for the church. Uh, and a moment, one must add, far closer to the church that we read about in the Bible, which was not a church of the status quo. Uh, uh, you know, it was a small uh, but yeasty uh, 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 minority. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. Yeah, you mentioned... Uh, you mentioned in the book that you you probably wouldn't go to a Howard Johnson's except for maybe a nostalgic uh, sort of, and that that I think is the is the conundrum. I mean, I, as much as 
as much as I have talked and preached against uh, cultural Christianity over the years, and I uh, continue to do so and, and really believe that, there also is a part of me that says the sort of... Um, the sort of culture that I was at the end of uh, growing up, where if you went to any Southern Baptist church in the country, you were going to have basically uh, the same sort of order of worship and, and so forth. And you had kind of a rhythm of the week in a way that when people say now, uh, why are evangelicals more influenced by talk radio or cable news or Facebook or whatever than they are by their churches? I mean, one of the reasons is we're only really together an hour a week. And mm -hmm. those are the regular, regular uh, churchgoers. So there is something, there is something lost in, in that kind of world that you can't bring back. I mean, even if a church said, well, we're going to start having Sunday night services and Wednesday night services, it, <laughs> it, it wouldn't happen. And you're so, still spending more hours with Netflix anyway. Um, right. And, 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 and that's part of, definitely part of the world that we live in. You know, I was going back and writing about American history, and it really was powerful to think that people growing up in Lexington in the colonial period, they heard two or three hours of sermon every week, and that was what they heard. I mean, they weren't going to plays, they weren't turning on the radio, there wasn't any TV, uh, uh, there weren't many books in the library if they could read to begin with. Um, um, that was the message that was getting through. and. So we're not going back to that day. And that's why probably it's important that we figure out how to, how to make the message that we do have stand out. Uh, and, and I don't think that's hard because I think in a weird way, uh, the gospel stands out even more sharply against the culture we live in at the moment than probably any time in human history. I mean, it's, we're a very rich society in a lot of ways, and it's a document that's designed to make rich people feel uncomfortable. Um, mm. You know, we're people of extraordinary um, technological reach, uh, and it's a document designed to, to point us towards humility. Um, mm. And so these are incredibly interesting countercultural ideas that we could be doing a lot with. You mentioned in the book about how, it, at least in, in your uh, part of uh, the church, it was almost as though a neutron bomb had gone off uh, where the structures <laughs> are there, but the, but the people are gone. There are some people who are saying that is, that is just what is going to happen with um, uh, technological uh, innovation, affluence, mobility, that society is just moving to secularization across the board. And so there, there are people who say, you know, you have this, you have this religious stuff, but it really isn't going to, uh, it really, it's going away. Until you look around and you see, for instance, Pentecostalism in uh, Africa and Asia and, and other places, um, what, what's uh, your view on that? Hinduism, uh, Islam. I mean, there are resurgent faith communities around the world. And I doubt that it's um, going away. And I think that its forms and shapes are what's in question. And I, I worry that its forms and shapes are going to be reactionary. Um, that they're uh, uh, going to try and hang on to the, the saddest parts of the culture 
instead of allow those to shift and change. Um, and, And I very much hope that the way around that, one way around that, is to really just go read again. I write in this book about what for me was transformative experience as a young man. Having grown up in the church, I made it to New York where I was a writer at the New Yorker. Um, but I just sat down. I didn't go to seminary like you. I'm not, I mean, the highest I've ever risen in the ecclesial hierarchy is Methodist Sunday school teacher, you know, so. But the, uh, the I remember sitting down for a year at lunch every day and just copying the gospels out by hand into a book, mm-hmm. uh, into a notebook. And it was a tremendously powerful experience for me because what had been a cultural Christianity uh, of my boyhood, uh, a comfortable one that taught me a lot in certain ways and that I in- enjoyed, became a um, very different thing. Uh, became one of the one of the several animating forces in a life that's been spent, you know, mostly trying to stand up to power and and change what I can. Mm. So so how then in this sort of North America do we get past the hyper individualism that you're talking about? Because I mean, we we, we started off talking about the Brady Bunch. Uh, one of the really interesting pop cultural developments right now is that um, the Office uh, sitcom has never mm-hmm. been more popular because ten and eleven and twelve year olds are watching it all day long. And I, I heard someone speculating about that and said uh, a lot of it is because they really don't think they're ever going to have the experience of working in a place with the same coworkers and and that sort of a almost uh, family. <laughs> and instead they have a gig economy uh, in front of them. So if that's the case, if we do have that all ahead of us, how, is there any hope to sort of push against individualism? Well, think how, first of all, think how sad that is. At least the Brady Bunch was a picture of a functional family. <laughs> the office is a thoroughly dysfunctional workplace. And the idea that people would aspire to it <laughs> is, is sad. The, the flip side of individualism is solidarity. I think actually we're probably, you know that most of my work has been dealing with the climate crisis over the years. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're going to have little choice but to figure out how to be uh, in some solidarity again. You know, one of the most distinctive things about America is that most people, three quarters of Americans, don't know their next door neighbor. They may know their name, but they don't have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. That's unique in human history. For 50 or 75 years, having neighbors, uh, <laughs> the neighbors we're supposed to be loving, uh, has been an optional thing for Americans. Uh, you can get on fine without them. If you've got a credit card, you can get all the necessities of life delivered to your door. You never have to see another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but my guess is in the 75 years to come, uh, neighbors are not going to be optional. That we're going to be dealing with extraordinary problems caused by our, uh, well, caused in large part by the uh, heedless wealth of the last 50 years. That's what the climate crisis is. And and that's what some of the other crises playing out in our society are right now. And so my guess is that that solidarity is going to be important. And the question is, what form is it going to take? Is it going to take the form of kind of 
reactionary, you know, white nationalism. That clearly is one of the options. We can mm-hmm. see it happening around us. Or is it going to take on the forms that the Gospels suggest of taking care of each other, of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and tending the sick in, in all the ways that we know how, and doing it across lines, being the Good Samaritan, knowing uh, uh, that 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 uh, God's love goes way beyond our particular uh, sects uh, and, and into the world at large. That's going to be, the, in some ways, the fateful question of the decades ahead. And I don't, I, I, I think that religious communities have a great deal to say about how that's going to come out and wh- whether it's going to come out for good or ill. And I think that the verdict is very unclear at this point. You know, we live in a mm. difficult moment in our history. Uh, and I, I can't imagine anyone being very pleased as they look around America right now at, at what's happening. And getting out of it's going to take, um, well, it's going to take a lot of that kind of, 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 of love. Mm. You've been writing about climate long before um, before it was a topic that was happening uh, all the time in American life. What would you say to people, and I know a lot of people, I think I am one, who would say, I don't, I don't deny climate change. I don't deny um, human responsibility in terms of climate change, but I don't know what can be done. And yeah. so e- even with, um, even with, I mean, b- because y- you could say, okay, we can move to renewable energy uh, and yet it, you do that too massively and too quickly, you, you end up with famine. Um, you say, well, we could do, we could cap carbon emissions with government action, but what happens with China and India and other places that there's no, there, there's no way to, to do that. And so there are a lot of people, I think, who think I'm concerned about this, but it just seems too big uh, so this to do is anything a, about it. This is an important question and beautifully put. And happily, for the moment, we can move a little bit out of metaphysics and into physics here. Um, because the answers to these questions are, are unavoidably physical. And I, I have very good news for you. Um, and this is very different news from how I would have answered this question 10 years ago. In the last 10 years, scientists and engineers have done their job. They've taken the, they've taken the wit God gave them and lowered the price of renewable energy 90%. They've brought down by an order of magnitude the price of solar power, wind power, and the batteries to store that power when the sun goes down or the wind dies. And that's a great, great miracle. Um, I don't know if it's, well, I I do think it's sort of almost uh, water into wine miracle. The cheapest way to generate power right now on this planet is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. And... And so we can move after 200,000 years of a career as a species of setting stuff on fire. And that's been a hallmark of our species from the start. Uh, and it's what's made us rich during the Industrial Revolution. We can move from that in short order to a civilization that relies on the fact that the good Lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles away in the sky. And we now know how to use it. That 
change. And it's really only in the last few years that we've come to that, that, that that's been technologically true, it sets up the possibility for enormous, dynamic, beautiful change. Because remember, burning fossil fuel isn't just causing a problem because it's raising the temperature and all the kind of fire and flood that goes with that. It's also causing extraordinary trouble because the latest big study last year showed that around the world, 9 million people a year die from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel, the little particulates that get in the lungs when you burn coal and gas and oil. 9 million, that's more than die from COVID. That's more than die from HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, war and terrorism combined. It's one death in five on this planet and they're entirely preventable. The vaccine for them is called solar panels and electric vehicles and air source heat pumps and these technologies that are now uh, within our reach. The only reason we're not moving quickly to them, well, there are two reasons. One, there's a certain amount of inertia, which is always a force in human affairs. Uh, but more to the point, there's an extraordinary amount of vested interest that's kept us locked in current ways of doing things. And that's why you know, people have come together to try and build the movements that can stand up to the fossil fuel industry and end its, uh, you know, hammer hold on our, our hammer lock on our politics. We're not completely there yet. You know, we just watched Joe Manchin, who's taken more money from the fossil fuel industry than anyone else in Washington, put the kibosh on this uh, climate plan that the president had sent to Congress. But we're getting closer. And I think... What's beautiful about that is that uh, when we do polling, what we find is that the single thing that polls best among Americans, Republicans, independents, Democrats, is solar power. About 80% of each group of that favors more government spending on solar power. And I, I, for different reasons, I think some conservatives like the idea that with a solar panel on their roof, their house is their castle and they're independent of the world. I think some liberals, you know, like the idea that we're all knit together by the warm power of the sun, whatever. Those are differences one can work with. Mm -hmm. This is a place where we're going to make, we could make extraordinary quick progress and it would come with all kinds of benefits. I'll just add that the, the one that's really become apparent this year uh, is, is that too often, fossil fuel and autocracy go hand in hand, Vladimir Putin gets 60% of his export earnings from oil and gas. If we ran the world on sun and wind, he would not be able to go attack Ukraine. Uh, he can't you know, interdict the sun. He can't wall off the wind somehow. Uh, in that world, you know, the fact that the sun and the wind are omnipresent, that we all have some of them, makes a kind of small d democratic future uh, much more possible. So this is a place where I'm very hopeful. Um, I'm just not sure we're going to do it in time because this one's a timed test. If we don't get it right soon, then we don't ever get it right. Because once we've melted the Arctic, it's not like someone has a plan for freezing it back up again. So am I wrong then uh, to say that... Um too hasty uh, of a move from fossil fuels to, to other forms of energy might well devastatingly hurt the poor. A am I yes. am I seeing that? Yes, wrong? at this point, yes, at this point, you are that uh, you would have you might have been right ten years ago. 
but this is one of these places where where scientific change produces change in in political reality and now it's just the reverse um if we don't change very quickly the i mean the kind of famines that we're unleashing even as we speak are incredible uh, somalia and the horn of africa is now in its fifth straight rainy season with no rain people are dying i mean the the long the long decrease in the number of people suffering from extreme hunger on this planet which you know that number had been going steadily down for about four decades began to reverse four or five years ago it's going up now because these climatic patterns i mean of all the things that we've ever managed to do to the rest of the world imperialism colonialism racism nothing quite compares to taking away the ability of people to grow food for their families and when i say we i i say it advisedly you know the entire continent of africa has produced 2% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere the 4% of us who live in the us have produced 25% of all the stuff in the air that's warming the planet so we have a real debt to pay here and one of the ways we can pay it is by making the switch ourselves and the other is by helping uh, uh uh people in the rest of the world do it and this i think is a place where people have extraordinary this is a place where the church has a great role to play i remember being down a few years ago to give a series of talks over a few days at southeastern baptist seminary mm-hmm. in new orleans well, um, new orleans baptist theology yeah and 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 it was uh uh it, it was true they they had a thousand or two pastors in from around the country and so i was telling them about the trips i'd taken recently off to africa watching people install solar power to get power for the very first time to have cold water for the first time in hot equatorial communities and i could see these men and women just saying you know they'd all been on mission trips to places like this that's one of the great things actually about i think about the evangelical tradition in this country is this tradition of mission trips and getting people out around the world and they instantly understood what i was talking about that this was a way to empower people in profound ways so this is <laughs> from the secular world the the first really good piece of good news <laughs> we've had in a long time i think is this rapid fall in the price of renewable energy which really changes the equation here and lets us imagine moving fast and doing it in ways that are dramatically dramatically helpful to the poorest most vulnerable people on the planet who should be the people we're thinking about the most as we do this work what i loved most of all about israel and why i became a zionist was because zionism was a rejection of victimhood a few weeks ago on ct's the bulletin we launched promise land a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. 
But they're all my friends that were here or murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I was, uh, when I taught at Southern Seminary, um, I would always in ethics class assign as one of the readings your book, Enough, um, about uh, some of the challenges about the nature of humanity uh, that are coming. And one of the things that's really interesting is when it comes to some of these questions of cloning, gene patenting, and um, and so forth, there's actually a lot of resonance between people on the social conservative right and people on the progressive left in, in many corners uh, here. Since then, I mean, you mentioned... Uh, in one of your one of your books about this metaphor of humanity as a machine, mm-hmm. um, and I remember it might have been in, enough where where you said um, if your genes are patented by Pfizer, uh, it, how do you pray? Uh, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, wh- 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 who are you? Who are you worshiping? Where right now? with some of the questions of artificial intelligence and and even that metaphor of machine. And Wendell Berry talks about that quite a bit in, in yes. uh, Life is a Miracle. Uh, that metaphor of machine seems to be, if anything, all the more uh, relevant. And yeah. with AI and those questions, where are we headed with that? Well, <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. Um, um, and w- w- AI is progressing fast and, and with a complete lack of anyone trying to regulate it or think very hard about what to do with it. And human genetic engineering in the same ways. Two years ago, uh, a team in China produced the first genetically engineered babies in the planet, uh, two of them. Uh, There was outcry from enough of the scientific community that the Chinese put a at least temporary stop to that work, or at least so they say. Uh, But clearly it's going on in other places too. Uh, and, and people continuing down this path. To me, the question is about how big humans want to be, um, whether or not we want to be in control of everything around us. And to me, this links up quite clearly with the climate dilemma too. You know, I wrote a book once about the book of Job, uh, one of my, maybe my favorite book and. It's certainly my favorite book in the Hebrew Bible. And, and it's because that, that speech at the end from God. Now, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that speech that God gives out of the whirlwind is the longest soliloquy that God delivers anywhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's such a remarkable speech because he's, on the one hand, it's this beautiful tour of the physical universe and the ostriches and the eagles and the gazelles and the... But it's also this taunting, taunting speech. Uh, uh, God's like, you know, he's annoyed that Job is bothered him. Do you tell me if you're so smart? Where do I keep the, you know, storms? Can you tell the proud waves where to break and no further? Can you create behemoth, you know? And Job, you know, Job, after three chapters of this, Job basically just says, sorry, I asked, you know, can I sit down now? And and that's how humans always were in relationship to uh, uh, the larger world. You know, we were small. Uh, uh, we were small. 
But that's not true anymore. I mean, beginning with the explosions of the first nuclear weapons in the middle of the last century, and now with our ability to change the very climate of the planet and to reach inside uh, DNA molecules and change potentially what humans are, we've become extraordinarily large. Now, when God taunts us, you know, you tell, can you tell the proud waves where to break? We're like, yeah, absolutely. We're raising the level of the sea. We're going to set the, well, that ability to spit in God's face seems to me a bad place for humans to be. And it's seems to me that one of our jobs is to figure out how to make ourselves smaller. Uh, I think if we do, the planet will be a happier place. And I think we'll be, you know, happier people on it. Uh, and I think you're right. This is a place where it's quite possible to see how, uh, uh, where the kind of uh, political ends of the spectrum can find some common ground. I don't know if you've seen Philip Jenkins' uh, latest uh, book on climate and religion, uh, but he, he talks, I was really struck by the conclusion to it in which he talks about um, the most religious places on the planet are in the global south, uh, in the equator, uh, and also the most affected uh, by some of, these, uh, some of these trends. And he argues that it may well be that a passage that doesn't really make sense to most modern Western European or North American uh, Christians in the book of Revelation, and there was no more sea, uh, which conveys you know, a, a chaotic, uh, dangerous uh, sort of reality. And most of us tend to think, well, why would we want to, uh, <laughs> the sea is where we relax. Uh, and he says, it may well be that people have much more of an understanding of the sea in that way. And- um, it's fascinating to watch how physical reality changes understanding. You know, uh, I, many of my colleagues in the South Pacific uh, have been doing a lot of work on climate change, organizing. They call themselves the Pacific Climate Warriors. You know that this is one of the most religious, one of the most Christian parts of the planet. Uh, these islands are, are, are heavily Christian. And at first, there was a lot of reluctance of pastors uh, uh, to credit the idea that w what was clearly happening was happening, that the ocean was rising and uh, tides beginning to flood people's homes and things. They said, no, this can't be. We were promised after Noah, no more floods, you know. Um, but as people, I mean, these, these organizers kept doing these big days of prayer across the regions and so on and so forth. And, and, and the kind of the theological uh, point to which people began to arrive was, yeah, you know what? Um, God promised he wouldn't flood us again, but he didn't promise that we wouldn't do it to ourselves. And so we need to start organizing ourselves to make sure that in our carelessness, in our recklessness, in the kind of, uh, 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 often in the greed and selfishness of those of us in the rich parts of the world, we don't do things in. And so now those places are some of the most active and, and most beautiful um, um, examples of the kind of activism we very much need. So I, you're right, I think it's gonna be a very, when the world changes and the world's changing now in profound ways, it can't help but change our, shift our theologies in certain ways too. I mean, go through the Bible, 
and or go through the hymnal and you know take out all the hymns that locate the power of God in the natural world in thunder and in storm mm-hmm. and in the beauty of the I mean a you've taken out an awful lot of the best hymns but but b you know I mean that's the world we're if we don't make some changes soon we're living in a world dominated by our own footprint not by god's footprint but by ours that's what it means that we're melting the poles that we're raising the seas whatever and since we know about this since we have been given firm warning by scientists about precisely what's going to happen and since they've given us an alternative to deal with it that was so far we've chosen not to adopt this one's on us i mean straightforwardly there was a, I may have been Brandon O'Brien's book on reading Christian, uh, reading the Bible through Western eyes. I'm not sure. But there was someone that did a study uh, where they were reading the parable of the prodigal son uh, to uh, people in various parts of the world. And there was one part of the story because they would read it and then they would say, tell me the story back to people who are unfamiliar with it. And there was one part of it that none of the North Americans or, or Western Europeans remembered. And everybody in Africa and Asia and other places did, and that was the famine. Because to uh, Western uh, industrialized people, that seemed like a minor incident. And to people who actually experience famine or the threat of famine, that's an important part of the story. That's an amazing story. Uh, That that is, uh, yes, that sums up an awful lot. And and here's the thing. I mean, it, it may not be forever that our children and grandchildren have that immunity. I mean, we're beginning to, we're beginning to understand, for instance, if you live in the West, what it means to be afraid of fire now eight months of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's changing people's sense of who they are and where they are and what it means. If you're, I mean, we used to think of California as the absolute kind of idol of relaxation of, I mean, the 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 golden west, the scene in a thousand Hollywood movies. And increasingly, there are parts of California where it's not safe to live anymore. And that's a scary thought. And the same is true across, you know, much of the world. One of the things that we're going to have to come to terms with, and I I think this is going to be an acute problem for both theology and politics, um, one of the things we have to come to terms with is that there, a huge part of humanity is going to be on the move in the future because the places where people live won't be livable anymore. It's already happening. The number of people, refugees caused by natural disaster, by climate conditions, in, set, in essence, now outnumbers the number caused by war. But the UN estimates that we could have a billion of these by mid-century. And again, remember, um, if one's kind of assigning responsibility for them, a huge amount of that responsibility lies with those of us who did the changing of the climate. Americans produce 300 times more CO2 than the average Somali does. So, you know, that's going to be a huge and acute political problem, and it'll be a place where we'll see whether uh, whether the Christian witness can be helpful or not. Uh, you know, we're told to welcome the stranger. Man, we're going to have a lot of strangers 
that we're going to get to welcome or not. And I hope that we can play a role. I'm on the advisory board of the uh, Lutheran uh, uh, Immigrant and Refugee Resettlement Program, and they're doing good work, but it's on, you know, so far on such a small scale still. These are things that are going to dramatically, and, and we're going to have the same questions within our own country as people move around from one place to another, uh, as places become harder to live in. So what a, on the one hand, what a great uh, and awful challenge that we may not be up to. On the other hand, what an extraordinary opportunity for Christians to prove that the, that the gospel means something. I mean, the thing, the thing that distinguished early Christians in the eyes of the rest of the dominant culture was how good they were at taking care of strangers, of other people, of looking out for, I mean, that was, that's how they were perceived. We'll see whether, <laughs> we'll see how much of that lives on 2,000 years later. Mm, that's a lot to think about. The book is called The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. Uh, Bill McKibben, thanks so much for being with me today. It's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you very, very much. And listeners, I'll be right back with some reflections on our conversation today. Be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Russell Moore Show. Well, I'll tell you, that was one of the um, Tell Me Where I'm Wrong episodes that ended up being much less about what I actually wanted us to argue about because in this conversation, Bill McKibben um, didn't seem quite as nostalgic, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but nostalgic as he did in his book about this loss of, of cultural Christianity. In the book, he does recognize it's not coming back. Howard Johnson's is not coming back. Um, but he's, he seems to have much more of a sense of loss uh, about that. And in this conversation, he had much more of a, uh, a hopeful uh, view of um, uh, of the future. And I think he and I would probably have different visions of what that ought to look like. I know I know we would, but he does have a sense of, of hopefulness on that. I was also really interested in the conversation on climate because again, uh, you, you all know, uh, I'm not a climate change denier. I'm, I'm really concerned about this um, and have been for years. I just don't know uh, what what can be done at the local sort of level. And I think that what he offered here was um, was maybe a more optimistic uh, viewpoint than I have heard from from some uh, environmental activists. Uh, I remember I would uh, meet with uh, some environmentalists who were secular environmentalists uh, quite a bit. In the early 2010s, I was working in this area, especially after the oil spill in my hometown, Bluxy. Um, and one of the things I found was this really, really apocalyptic view that we're headed toward extinction. There's nothing that can be done, uh, and I think there's a kind of, kind of like with with preaching. Sometimes there's a kind of catastrophism that seems as though it motivates people, but actually ends up immobilizing them because they say, "Well, yeah, what what, what can I do?" Uh, and so I think his his uh, viewpoint here was much more optimistic. I'm not sure 
that we can uh, move to renewable energy as quickly as he thinks. Uh, I think fossil fuels are not going to go away uh, anytime soon. And I wish that I had asked him about nuclear power. Um, I, I think he's opposed to nuclear power if I'm right, but there are many people who are suggesting that nuclear ought to be a key, um, a, a part of dealing with, uh, with carbon issues. I, I don't know. Uh, but it's something to something to think about and something to ponder. But I'm really appreciative of someone who was able to uh, talk about these really important uh, matters uh, charitably and with a view toward informing and educating and persuading rather than what we typically see, which is, well, I'm a, you know, he, he, he could easily have been the kind of person to say, well, I'm a progressive and you're an evangelical and therefore I'm going to assume that you want to burn up the planet and uh, it, it doesn't do that. And so I think that's, that's a hopeful sign. So I think that on our question of cultural Christianity, although he didn't get as, as far into it as I thought, my view still stands that cultural Christianity is a real problem because I believe in hell and because I think the stakes are, are so high. But I also think he's right that that doesn't mean that it going away doesn't come with some very human losses. That's true. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes. Be sure to pass this, uh, this show along to somebody you think might be interested in it. And uh, of course, uh, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. That really helps other people to find the show. And while you're at it, check out Christianity Today. You can find out how to have a six-month trial uh, membership at CT with lots and lots of good resources. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer, Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Core Media. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.